It's time for our reading, and we're in Lamentations tonight. Um, so do join me on page 823 in your Bibles. I'm going to read all of chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no, no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labour, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her young women grieve and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. For the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honoured her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, look on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like me, suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into, into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute, because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. 
The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbours become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and my heart I am, in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my, all of my sins. My groans are many and my heart is faint. Good evening. Stu, thank you so much for reading our passage, a nice cheery passage for me to sign off on. Let me, let me pray as we begin. Father, I thank you so much for uh, the, the opportunity I've had to preach your word here over the years. We pray for, you, for your help. Help me by your spirit to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and give us soft hearts to receive your word and help us, to, yeah, help us to understand these words and we pray that you would minister to us through them. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you do when you lose everything? What do you do when you lose everything? Just over the last year or two, we've seen countless images in the news of regions devastated by war. There's Ukraine, there's the Middle East, there's the DRC, there's Syria, there's Ethiopia, there's Sudan, there's Somalia. Sadly, the list could go on. Because of these conflicts, Multitudes of people have lost all that they held dear. People have lost possessions, so homes, shops, businesses, precious memorabilia. But worse, far, far worse, people have lost loved ones. Spouses, children, parents, brothers, sisters. Friends, our passage this evening is about loss. The Judahites, the people of Judah, uh, they suffered loss in many ways uh, not dissimilar to the loss people are experiencing in various parts of the world today because of war and conflict. When their city Jerusalem fell in 586 BC, the Judahites lost everything. I was going to read 2 Kings 25 to give you the backdrop, but it's quite a long Passage. I do encourage you when you go home to read that. 2 Kings 25, that is the backdrop to our passage today. In our passage, we read about the personal pain of that experience, of that fall, of the fall of Jerusalem. 
This is a poem written by someone who felt firsthand the, the agony of losing their beloved city and everything that made it so special. Now, folks, as you could tell from the reading and also from the title of our message, Tears, this passage is heavy. You might even think it's depressing. And you might wonder, hey, why should I listen to what Lamentations has to say? Here's why I think you should listen to this chapter. It shows us where rebellion against God finally leads. It shows us where rebellion against God finally leads. You see, the book of Lamentations, it it isn't primarily um, about suffering in a general sense. So it's not a book that asks, hey, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there suffering? That's a question that the book of Job asks. So, So Job doesn't know why he's suffering. He's like, what on earth is going on? Why? Why? But in Lamentations, the reason the Judahites are suffering, well, that couldn't be clearer. Just have a look at verse 5. The Lord has brought her, that's Jerusalem, the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Why is the city of Jerusalem in the terrible state that it's in? It's plain for us to see, isn't it? Judah's rebellion against God is what has led to her suffering. Now, folks, in case there's any doubt, I want to underline that suffering is not always a direct result of sin. So I mentioned the book of Job. Job did not, he did not suffer because of sins he'd committed. But here in Lamentations, well, the suffering clearly is a direct consequence of sin. What we'll learn tonight is is when sin does always lead to suffering. When it does always lead to suffering. But friends, encouragingly, we're also going to see how this particular suffering can be avoided. The suffering portrayed and described in this passage is meant to be a lesson to us. This poem isn't merely a way for the author to to express or process their grief. Yes, it is that, but it isn't only that. The author wants us to to learn from the suffering that Judah went through. Now, why do do I think that? Because of what the author invites us to do. So in verse 18, it says, Listen, all you peoples. Look on my suffering. Look on my suffering. And a few verses earlier in verse 12, it says, Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look around and see. Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering? Friends, twice in this passage, we're invited to look at Judah's suffering. And we are to look so that we can learn. We have two points today. 
The first point is this. Look, God judged guilty Jerusalem. I want us to spend a bit of time uh, considering how exactly Jerusalem suffered. And we need to bear in mind that God's judging of Jerusalem, it would have come as a shock to the people of Judah. Why is that? The promises of God to his people, they were inextricably linked with the promised land, right? And what was the capital of the promised land? Jerusalem. So how exactly do we see the city of Jerusalem suffer? There are at least five ways. And we're going to be jumping around a bit, sorry, um, just because this is a poem, so it's not like um, a New Testament epistle is a logical structure. It's, it's, it just works slightly different, so we'll be jumping around a bit. So how does Jerusalem suffer? Firstly, she loses her riches. Verse 1. She who once was she who was once queen among the provinces has now become a slave. In verse 7, in the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in the days of old. Jerusalem is portrayed as, as a woman who is now unrecognizable. She once wore a crown. She now bears chains. She's gone from billionaire to beggar. She has lost her riches. Secondly, she loses her rest. Verse 3. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. Why is this striking? This is the fulfillment of the curse that God had warned his people would happen if they refused to obey him. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 28. You see, God had wanted Judah to experience rest. This is why he'd originally given her the land, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. And it's why he'd given her the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Rest. Friends, God's desire for Judah was for her to enjoy rest. But she has refused that rest by refusing to listen to the Lord. Judah lost her rest. Thirdly, she loses her religious life. Verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn. For no one comes to her appointed festivals. And then verse 19. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. Even though Judah's religious life may have become somewhat of a facade because of her rebellion, it still would have formed the central part of her Life. You see, the, the festivals were, were a reminder of the power and grace that God had previously demonstrated towards her. For example, at the Exodus and the original Passover. But now, there are no more pilgrimages to Jerusalem. 
there are no more celebrations. The temple is in tatters. And the priests who would lead Judah in her worship are dead. Judah's religious life is all but gone. Fourthly, she loses her recruits. Verse 15. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. Judah's military has been devastated. And without an army, it's going to be very hard indeed for the Judahites to win the city back. Judah has lost her recruits. Lastly, she loses her relationships. Now, now this particular loss is expressed all over the poem. In verse 1, the city is described as being deserted. And Jerusalem is compared to a woman who's lost her husband. And to make matters worse, this widow has no one to comfort her. Listen to verse 2. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. The picture here is that adulterous Judah is mourning the death of her husband. And I think it's meant to be slightly ironic. This woman who supposedly loved her husband so much had multiple lovers. But here's the painful reality. She's, she's been abandoned by those who'd previously courted her. They, they now want nothing to do with her. She's not only lost her husband, but her lovers too. Maybe she, she naively thought that her adulterous relationships would mean that she would have more people to love and protect her. How wrong she was. She's been completely forsaken. Now, there are a number of verses we could turn to um, where we'd see that Judah has no one to comfort or help her. But I just want to point, point out one more. Verse 17. Verse 17. Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. Do you see the, the desperation here? Judah is begging for comfort. She's pleading for help, but crushingly she finds none. Folks, it is one thing to suffer, but it's quite another to, to suffer without anyone offering to help or comfort you. And it's especially rough when, when you go and you beg for help, but everyone just ignores you. Judah is like a beggar who's asking passers-by for change, including people who'd previously known her, 
known her from when her days were good, known her from when she had a job, drove a nice car, and lived in a cozy home. But now, they just walk straight past her, avoiding all eye contact, pretending they don't even know her. You're beginning to get a, a sense of the rejection felt by Judah. Now, I warned you that this passage was heavy, didn't I? But that's exactly what the author wants us to contemplate. He's saying, look, look, look at Jerusalem's suffering. <laughs> and we're thinking, do I have to look? I'm not really sure I want to look. It's grim. No, look. Look at her suffering. It's all a result of her rebellion against God. Remember what we saw in verse 5. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. And we get this idea again of, of Judah's rebellion and of her deserving judgment in a couple of other verses. So verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned greatly. And in verse 20, Jerusalem confesses, I have been most rebellious. And in verse 18, the Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Now that could also be translated the following way, um, as per the ESV. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Friends, do you ever have reservations about God being a judge? We've all wondered, haven't we, why does God have to judge? He has to judge because he's righteous. He hates evil and sin. I think the main reason where we're tempted to, to think that God shouldn't judge is because our levels or standards of righteousness are so much lower than his. God hates evil. God hates sin. He can't accommodate it. But people, people, we, we love sin. That's why we don't want God to judge. We tend to downplay sin. And it just goes to show how our, our own righteousness pales in comparison to God's. God is righteous, and when he judges, he's always in the right. As I was thinking about, about this, um, I was just thinking how interesting it is how when an earthly judge doesn't convict a criminal despite conclusive evidence, despite the smoking gun, what do we do? We don't celebrate that judge. Rather, we condemn that judge. We, we don't want judges like that in our judicial system, do we? Judges who turn a blind eye to evil? But strangely, strangely, many people want a God like that. It's not uncommon to hear people say things like, the God I believe in would never judge. 
The God I believe in would never judge. Friends, if we believe in a God like that, then we're not believing in the God of the Bible. And that God that we are believing in, he's terrible. He doesn't judge. He's, he's corrupt. He's indifferent to sin and evil. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want a God like that. Well, we need a God who will do something about evil. Thankfully, our God does. Now, that was a bit of a sidebar, but I think it was worth talking about because it's just so common today for people to, to write off the idea of God as judge. What I want to do now is, is just highlight a bit further how Judah was guilty and deserving of judgment. So we can't think, hey, maybe, maybe you know, God should have given Judah another chance or something. Um, maybe you know, it's a bit unfair. Judah had been warned that rebellion would lead to judgment. So, so judgment did not come out of the blue, right? Judah had been warned through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, especially Deuteronomy. And she'd been warned through the numerous prophets. And she'd also been warned through the judgment that happened to her neighbors, the northern kingdom, Israel. You see, that should have served as a lesson to Judah. So we have to ask the question, why did Judah not heed any of the warnings? Here's why. Verse 9. She did not consider her future. In other words, she was only interested in the present. She didn't contemplate or perhaps believe that her rebellious living in the here and now would have any bearing on the future. Friends, do, do you live in the present with an eye on the future? Do you live in the present as though it will affect your future with God? You see, God wants us to do that. This is why he, he warns us in his word to, to turn from our rebellious ways, to repent of our sin. He calls us to stop living selfishly for ourselves and to live for him. I wonder if you're here this evening and you've never repented. If anyone fails to repent of their rebellion against God, then God is right to judge. Indeed, as I've shared, he, he must judge. A, a God who does not judge sin and evil, he cannot be trusted. Well, how do we know that God will judge the rest of the world, the whole world, and not just Judah? Maybe he just judged Judah, right? So this is what we're going to consider now in our second and much shorter point, though it's just as important. God will also judge the guilty world. We get a, um, a sense of this more universal judgment towards the end of the poem. 
So in verse 21, the author prays the following to God. May you bring the day you have announced, so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me. The author's prayers here, they they might seem a bit harsh to us. But what's he doing? He's, He's praying for justice. Just as it was fair for God to judge Judah for her, for her sins, it's also fair that he judge the nations such as Babylon for theirs. And I think the author might have in mind here the, the pronouncements of judgment uh, upon the nations that are found in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We learn there that God will judge the world for its rebellion. Okay, let's, let's pull some threads together now. Here's why I think God has been inviting us in this poem to look at Jerusalem, to look at her suffering, to look at her judgment. If God judged Jerusalem for her sin, as he'd warned, then he will surely also judge the rest of the world as he has warned. Friends, if, if we will not repent of our sin and turn to God for forgiveness, then like Jerusalem, we too will be judged and we too will lament. So here's how this passage applies today. Repent now so that you won't have to lament later. Repent now so that you won't have to lament later. You see, there there really are only two types of people in this world. Those who repent in this life, and there are those who will lament in the next. If you haven't yet repented and put your trust in Jesus, then then my sincere hope is that you will look at Jerusalem's suffering and seriously consider it. As I was preparing this message, I I was reminded of what Jesus says uh, in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, where he compares the rich man and Lazarus. Let me read those verses to you. So Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me 
and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, when you read that story in its entirety, you learn that the rich man had failed to repent of his sin. And that's why he ends up lamenting. He's in hell. He lost everything. Like Jerusalem, he, he also lost his riches. He lost his rest. And he lost his relationships. The point that Jesus makes by telling that story, it's similar in many ways to, lamentation, to Lamentations 1. You see, Jesus wants us to repent so that we won't have to lament. The will of Jesus, like that of his heavenly Father, is that you would not perish, but come to repentance and receive eternal life. That is what Jesus wants for you. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus experienced judgment so that we wouldn't have to. You could say, in a sense, he experienced lament in our place so that if we repent, we wouldn't have to. That's how much he loves us. And that's how much he wants to save us. Look at Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that if we're trusting in Jesus, if we've repented of our sin and put our trust in him, then we do not have to fear losing our city, our heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Thank you so much that that city is secure. It's been secured by your son's blood. Father, we pray that if there are any amongst us here this evening who are not trusting in Jesus' blood, who have not repented, we pray that they would do so, that they would have access to this heavenly city rather than lament not being in it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.